Hello and welcome to number six in the series of weekly podcasts from Rethink Energy. My name is Peter White. Uh, myself and analyst Harry Morgan and Andreas Wontenar are going to go through uh, this week's issue of uh, Rethink Energy Weekly Analysis. I wanted to start with a story about Avistra. Avistra in the States has just cleared its final planning hurdle to um, build a massive battery. It started out at Moss Landing in Monterey in California, um, getting 300 megawatts approved previously, and it's, it's already made the investment decision from that. It's added 100 recently. Um, next door, PG&E on, on virtually the same campus has added another 183 megawatts, now it's proposing four separate buildings, each of 300 gigawatts, to top out about 1.6 gigawatts or 6 gigawatt hours of battery storage, making it by far the largest um, battery installation in the world. Well, there's no date for that because there's no final investment decision made on, you know, they're going to be looking for a deal to sell that electricity before they, they actually go out and build it. But... They cleared the final planning hurdle. And I think what we're, I'm taking from this is that Moss Landing used to be one of those places where um, Donald Trump would argue, oh, we need fossil fuels, we need to keep the jobs, we need to keep this happening. But since the 1950s, it's been a, a, a site for gas turbines. And here we are throwing uh, four or 500 jobs at this uh, in the building stage, probably 100 uh, permanently and it just is that this is what's going to happen to every fossil fuel installation in the world coal mines coal plants gas plants are all going to be somehow renewalized and in this case they look at the transmission system that's that's in place and go wow that's worth a fortune they've got the transmission capability there we can augment that and improve it but we can put a hell of a lot of electricity through it and I think that's that's the key case for cleaning up coal mines and cleaning up gas turbines, that, that renewables will come along and have a good use for that transmission capability and put lots of it in place. I think the nearest um, to this elsewhere in the world is 300, 400 megawatts of, uh, of battery energy storage. This is going to be something like 1.6. So... That, that's that's what I wanted to talk about it. But um, a story from Andres this week um, talked about a couple of fires in China uh, affecting silicon prices uh, for solar. I wonder if you can walk us through that, Andres. So uh, in late July, two polysilicon factories were disabled by fires. Uh, and it's taken a little while for it to percolate through the supply chain. But now we're seeing prices all through all the components that use that polysilicon have gone up quite a bit. Um, so the two factories that were disabled were something like 11 or 12% of global supply. And uh, half of China's um, polysilicon comes from Xinjiang, where they're located. And all of the other factories there were also told to um, reduce their production. Well, not just reduce, but to be, be careful that they don't screw up as well. So there were state regulations coming in that further interfered with supply. So what's this, this going to do to the solar market because not everything is polysilicon and also polysilicon tends to fill the low end of the market. Yeah, so uh, 
two thirds of solar is monocrystalline, I think, at this point, broadly speaking. But you still have a lot of the polysilicon. And now that the prices are going up, they're going quite up quite a lot. You've got like I think twenty percent overall for cell prices and other things. Now, so a lot of the um, solar developments that were planning to come along in China by the end of this year are now going to be delayed past the end of subsidies, which is uh, just shows how serious this um, price increase is. So, so there we were thinking China is about to put all of its excess capacity, very cheap low-end capacity, onto the market. And the low end of the market has suddenly had a price hike. Hmm. So this is going to cause, um, this is probably going to slow that process down. And um, uh, it's probably a few American manufacturers going few, you know, the, 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 with the tariffs, they, they, they aren't going to be able to undercut us after all. Yeah, and maybe maybe India, India as well, because I read that um, India, similarly to, to the US, is trying to keep out Chinese modules with um, with a 30% tariff. And India doesn't have that yet. Right now, the legislation isn't in place and it's their, their import tariff is only 15%. So um, this will effectively raise it back up to the threshold where maybe their domestic manufacturing can still compete quite well. Right, but we've seen we've seen how China, as a managed economy, essentially managed economy, can bounce back. We saw it bounce back from coronavirus. My guess is that what we're going to see here is some um, manufacturers uh, that were halfway between polysilicon and monosilicon are going to going to start switching more aggressively, and they'll put all their price efforts into the the quality product, and they will bounce back from this in two to three months. I mean that's Typically, what happens in China, they're very good at getting over things. Yeah, and I think I think two to three months is probably by then the, these factories, the, the polysilicon ones, will be back online as well. Although that's you know this is kind of a it, it was on the down and out to some extent already, and now, like you say, monocrystalline is going to be accelerated. Okay, so um, one of the other pieces that Harry wrote about was about uh, spinel oxides. Now we know what they are. But apparently, uh, Harry now knows how they work with electrolysis. Um, his eyes were crossed by some of the equations, but he waded through it. Harry? Well, yeah, I suppose you say we know what spinal oxides are, but I think a lot of chemists would probably uh, disagree with that. I think in terms of chemistry, that's something that people really didn't know much about in terms of electrolysis compared to other components. In sort of the context of, of the green hydrogen scope of things, obviously, we're at this price point now of around three to six sort of euros per kilogram. Uh, and we're trying to go down to this 1.5 euros per kilogram of grey hydrogen so that we're at this point of parity where we can suddenly ramp up production. And these scientists in Singapore this week have basically broken this bottleneck, if you like, in electrolysis through these spinal oxide catalysts. As you were saying, I had to brush up my chemistry a bit, but um, what these essentially do is just speed up the oxygen evolution reaction. So through electrolysis, obviously you've got hydrogen or oxygen as a product, but it's actually the production of oxygen that causes this sort of traffic jam, which limits the speed of reaction and therefore how much hydrogen is being produced. And what they've obviously done through this research is they've identified the chemistry of these spinal oxides. And they've worked out that the speed of reaction essentially depends on how much metal is in either this octahedral or tetrahedral shape. Um, and basically, if there's more octahedral, that means there's freer electrons or weaker bonds, which allows what they're calling a lattice oxygen participator mechanism, where there's a sort of greater exposure to sites on the, uh, the anode, actually. So they obviously identified this and then 
around sort of machine learning algorithms came out with different results for different uh, catalyst structures. Uh, and what they found was they found that a certain aluminium uh, manganese catalyst could actually be 20% more effective than some of the spinal oxide catalysts that are out there at the moment. Um, when you think about these sort of 20% increases in micro efficiencies across the system, they really can reflect themselves in sort of the, the greater production rates of electrolysis. So what do you think that's going to do for the, the pricing, um, you know, as soon as that can be absorbed into manufacturing processes? Uh, well, it could be huge. The electricity input for electrolyzers accounts for as much as sort of 75% of the cost of uh, hydrogen production and sort of larger systems. So as soon as you've got sort of a 2% increase in efficiency there maybe, then you're reducing the amount of electricity you need by 2%. So when that's 75% of the cost, then it has a real impact on the greater cost of hydrogen. Okay, but if that's the limiting factor on the hydrogen, the whole thing's going to speed up more than more than a few percent. It's going to be closer to 20. And and 20% of the 75% of the cost is going to be significant falling cost. Yeah, it's the, I mean, that's definitely the possibility of it. The, um, the problem at the moment is that these are far from reaching commercial production. But if this 20% is something that is possible, uh, then it's certainly something that your electrolyzer manufacturers will suddenly race to go towards. The, uh, the great thing about spinal oxides as well is that they can theoretically remove the need for precious metals in, in the uh, catalyst, uh, which is a conversation we're really seeing more and more across the energy sector. I know, Peter, you'll be seeing it a lot in battery storage, um, but we're also seeing it a lot in sort of electrolyzers. So we're going to see a number of things coming together. We're going to see electricity falling in price for electrolysis. We're going to see the components falling in price. Uh, we're going to see the efficiencies uh, coming up. And, and all of those will come out in the three to four year time frame and have a massive effect on the price. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously at the start of the year, we were seeing 2030 as the sort of year at which parity was going to be reached for green hydrogen. But we've seen companies like Anapta saying 2025, Morgan Stanley a couple of weeks ago said 2023 possibly, um, if wind can reach $5 per megawatt hour, which it definitely can in some markets. And if we've learned anything from markets like solar, these sort of pie in the sky forecasts that people sort of dub them as, are actually the estimates that we should be basing our forecasts on. I mean, the reductions will be much quicker than people expect. Interestingly, all of our forecasts that we've done are cons massively conservative because we don't assume there's going to be a, a sudden and further reduction in costs. And if we did, the numbers just are, are mind-numbing. Uh, They're sort of just too large to contemplate. Uh, but that's what happens is you get halfway through a cycle and then that becomes obvious and the numbers just go up and up. Listen, that's um, what's in this issue of uh, Rethink Energy, the weekly analysis. Harry's going to go through the, um, the, some of the shorter items. Uh, the weekly analysis on its own can be bought for $595. Become a subscriber. You can join at www.rethinkresearch.biz. And all of our forecasts can also be purchased there um, as well. Uh, thank you. Uh, very much. This is Peter White signing out from the uh, Rethink Energy podcast. So just to round up then, through the rest of the issue we saw Duke Energy's new five-year capital plan worth $56 billion uh, over the next four years, which will likely focus on a shift towards solar and storage, while the company actually reported its quarterly earnings where it hid the dent in its balance sheet from the Atlantic Pipeline project um, with discussions around rate negotiations instead. Uh, we're also hoping for a similar inconsistent shift from Equinor, who we also wrote about, who appointed the new CEO this week after the company joined the uh, rest of the oil majors in accepting a vast amount of impairment from upstream oil and gas. 
In terms of financials this week, we've written about Austin, which has struggled through COVID-19, posting its first uh, net loss in over five years due to low electricity prices, which have squeezed margins for offshore wind. Uh, this potentially spells trouble in markets uh, in the future, which will see prices fluctuate more and more as renewable penetration continues to increase. We also heard from Vestas, uh, which is also struggling with offshore wind, um, posted another quarter of net loss. Uh, but the key figure here was the 175 million euros it has to shell out for warranty provisions. It may be something around lightning for this, but hopefully this doesn't spell a bigger problem around product quality in the long run. Of the companies posting profit, we wrote about First Solar, which has just sold its operations and maintenance arm, uh, which indicates a potential shift away from the product development side of things and towards manufacturing. Uh, this is in opposition to the movement of sun power and could potentially spell the fact that it's noticing an opportunity with the likes of Joe Biden um, and Donald Trump potentially looking for more manufacturing jobs in the US. Uh, we also ran a short on the SNEC PV Power Expo in Shanghai, which continues to confirm the shift towards larger solar module sizes uh, up to around 800 megawatts for uh, JA's Jumbo Blue module. Then finally, we have Generac Power Systems, which is uh, also looking to convert its diesel backup generator customers towards lithium ion, and that's, that's the last article in the issue. In terms of orders this week, we saw uh, several onshore wind projects going to Vestas in China, while Actis in the UK has acquired 400 megawatts of solar projects in India from Acme. And then in worth noting this week, uh, just to pull out a few key ones, we've got South Korea's capital Seoul proposing a plan to phase out all diesel vehicles from its public fleet by 2025. So a lot of electric vehicles and hydrogen vehicle opportunities there. Uh, we also saw UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson outlining plans to stop investment in overseas fossil fuel projects after the ridiculous Mozambique project uh, we mentioned a few weeks ago. We also saw Tesla this week making noises um, following its application to enter the UK market for power generation with a similar move in Germany. Uh, and finally, we saw RWE post a really strong financial quarter managing actually an increase in profit and actually boosted its renewables portfolio from 5% of generation up to 20%. Obviously, this has been massively helped by its acquisition of energies assets uh, from E.ON.